You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Well, for those that are visiting with us today, and we're excited for those that are, that are with us this morning, uh, we're working through the book of Romans chapter by chapter, and so we come to chapter 12 this morning, and as we've done in previous weeks, I want to read the entire chapter to set the context. Uh, there's so much material here. Um, we could spend weeks just on chapter 12. But what we're attempting to do is to give you a complete overview of the book of Romans, flowing out of our understanding of the book of Jude, that we're to contend for the faith, talking about that faith that we're called to contend for. Um, And so we've been studying heavily the past three weeks in chapters 9, 10, and 11, understanding doctrines of election and God choosing for salvation and, and how that's not in conflict with his grace and mercy that he extends to all people specifically looking at uh, chapter 11 last week, how the Jewish people continue to factor into God's plan, uh, that there is a remnant that God intends to save. Um, And he's been saving that remnant for all time uh, and continues to save people until he returns. Um, And so we we rejoiced over the fact that, that God is faithful. And in chapter 11, that points us to God's faithfulness as we see his faithfulness to his people of the Old Testament and how he continues to be faithful to those promises, that he has not set aside his people, he has not uh, relinquished those promises, he has not failed to be faithful to his people. He continues to do everything that he's intended to set out to do. And we rejoiced over that last week in chapter 11, which brings us now to Romans chapter 12. Let's read there starting in verse 1. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching the one who exhorts in his exhortation the one who contributes in generosity the one who leads with zeal the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness let love be genuine abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable 
in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Before we get into our text this morning, before we dismiss our kids, I want to turn our attention to prayer this morning. The, the, the Apostle Paul uh, pulls our attention in that direction in verse 12, where he tells us to be constant in prayer. And as I was studying this week and thinking through what we've been learning in chapters 9, 10, and 11, and then what uh, the Lord has for us this morning in verse 12, I was thinking specifically of uh, uh, areas of need within our church that we can be in prayer for this morning. So I'm going to share a couple of things, and then I'm going to take uh, volunteers um, from our church family to pray for those this morning. The first thing that I was drawing attention to this week in studying, um, it's not by coincidence that we spend a whole week studying chapter 11 and how God's not done with the Jewish people. And how God has intentions of saving Jewish people until he comes back. That we send one of our very own to Poland to work with Jewish people this week. Um, John Mark, who's come home from seminary, uh, who some of you are just now getting to know, others of us have known him for years, has such a heart for Poland and has such a heart for the Jewish people who are in Poland and reaching them with the gospel. So John Mark, is, as he normally is, very quietly slips out of our country. Most of you probably didn't even know that he was planning to go on a mission trip. Didn't ask anything of us in going, but uh, simply posts a message the night before and says, hey, if I didn't tell you I'm, I'm leaving and going to Poland for a while, um, I'll be back soon. And so uh, we want to be mindful of the fact that, that John Mark is sent out from our church, which, you know, chapter 10 tells us that even in God's sovereignty and election, Chapter 10 flows out of right, right out of chapter 9 and says, you have to go and tell people the gospel if they're going to be saved. That God's sovereignty never allows us to be lazy in our pursuit of Christ, never allows us to sit back on the sidelines and say, let me just watch what God's going to do. God, in all his grace and mercy, remains completely in control of everything and yet calls us to participate in his glorious plans. And John Mark has an opportunity to participate in that this week, uh, actively taking the gospel overseas, specifically taking it to the Jewish nation, the Jewish people that God has promised to continue to save until he sends Jesus to come back. Um, and so I want to pray for John Mark this morning in, in his endeavors, working with a new group of Jewish people in a new area than where he's previously gone. So we want to surround him with prayer this morning. Is there somebody that'd like to volunteer to pray for John Mark and uh, his endeavors over this next week. Okay. Amen. We also want to be in prayer this morning for um, the three guys who had previously served as external elders that are now transitioning out of that role uh, with both Adam and Tyson being ordained recently as elders of Sovereign Hope. Uh, but Rob and Sean and Spencer working at Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters and their families continue to invest their lives in the gospel. And so while they don't function as external elders anymore for us, um, they do continue to function as North American missionaries. And they're going to have, over the next nine weeks, so they've completed week one, over the next nine weeks, they're going to have 300-plus campers, youth pastors coming in for summer camp. Many of these students come in without a real knowledge of the gospel, without a real knowledge of Christ. This camp attracts uh, churches from all kinds of denominations, some that are Bible-believing and gospel-believing churches, others that 
uh, have strayed from the gospel. And for the very first time, some of these students will hear the gospel in its unadulterated form um, based on grace and not works. And it'll be their first exposure to that. And so we want to pray that in the, in the midst of what we learn in Romans 9, that God has a people that he will save. And nothing can change those plans. That again, he's called people to participate in getting the gospel to those people that he intends to save. And, and Lord willing, and, and we will rejoice at the end of the summer, there are people that will be saved through this ministry that has helped us so much in our church plant start. So we want to be mindful of praying for both Rob, Sean, and Spencer as they teach this week, as they have conversations this week, that they would be faithful to proclaim the gospel, sensitive to the Spirit's leading in the hearts of students, um, and that the, the hearts of students, even today as they make preparations to leave for this week, would be prepared to hear the gospel and to respond to the gospel. So uh, somebody like to volunteer to pray for Rob, Sean, and Spencer and the work going on at Snowbird. Yeah. The last thing I want to draw attention to this morning as we pray together is um, in this passage here in Romans 12, it tells us to weep with those that are weeping. And uh, most of you know Todd and, and Amanda um, had, had recently started coming to our church, had jumped all in and were pursuing membership. And now, um, based on their, their child Maggie's sickness, uh, Amanda and Hannah and Maggie have been in Louisiana for several weeks now. Um, trying to get some answers to what's going on with her physically. Todd's been in D.C., relocated there for uh, several weeks with his job, and so that's why they haven't been with us. Uh, but in the midst of that, they've been separated as a family. Um, today they're being reunited for a time. The girls are going to visit him in D.C., but there's still a lot of unanswered questions of what's going on with Maggie. She continues to run a fever, has been running a fever now, I think probably close to two months. Uh, doctors don't have answers. Um, there's There's the battling of frustration that's happening with Todd and Amanda. Um, obviously, they have great concern for their child and want to see their child better and want to see their child um, healed from this. But then also in the midst of dealing with that, they, they've been separated as a family uh, due to his job situation. And so we want to be mindful of what they're going through this morning. We want to be prayerful over them this morning because um, they're, they're weeping right now. They're, they're going through difficult times, and they need the patience that Paul talks about here in chapter 12. They need to... Uh, be able to rejoice in their hope uh, right now, even though in the midst of these difficult circumstances, God is working good in their life. That comes from Romans 8, that assurance, that promise that his plans are good, his plans are perfect. Um, and we want to pray that over them this morning, that they would embrace those truths, they would believe those truths um, as they weather this storm right now of both Maggie's sickness and uh, just the difficulties with his job situation. So is there somebody that wants to pray for Todd and Amanda and their family this morning? Okay. Amen. All right, if you've got kids that are a part of the kids' class, that's ages um, four up to fourth grade, they can be dismissed to the back. I think Miss Carolyn's taking them today, so they're invited to participate with her. All right, as they're leaving, we're going to turn our attention back to Romans chapter 12. As we've already discussed this morning, the past several weeks have been devoted to um, understanding Israel better. Romans chapter 9, we looked at the, uh, the past of Israel and how God has been faithful to work. We looked um, in chapter 10 at what, what's happening presently with Israel. 
um, in chapter 11 what's going to continue to happen in the future with Israel, that God has intentions and plans to save his people, and that we, we fall into that because we've been grafted into God's people, right? Like we've been grafted into what God is doing. So he, he began that work through Abraham, making covenants with Abraham that flowed into the Jewish people that we see in the Old Testament. And then by God's grace, and we learn also because of Jewish rejection, by God's grace, he begins to overwhelmingly in the New Testament include the Gentile people. And for probably all of us here this morning, we can be grateful, eternally thankful that God chose to include us. And so we looked last week at chapter 11 about how God's, uh, God working in Israel, working through their rejection, brings us to salvation. We said that Israel's fall has won the Gentiles. And then Paul elaborates and says, God is going to win the Jewish people by making them jealous over the fact that Gentiles are getting saved. So his plan all along was to save Jewish people. The Jewish people reject him. So God says, I'm going to turn to the Gentiles. But by turning to the Gentiles, he's ultimately keeping his heart and focus on the Jewish people because now the promise is they will turn to Christ. They will accept him as their Messiah because of jealousy over seeing what he does through the Gentiles. And then ultimately, through the Jewish victory, Paul says, if you think people got saved when the Jews rejected the Messiah— Think about how many people are going to get saved when the Jews accept their Messiah. And so ultimately, Romans chapter 11 culminates with everybody being saved that's supposed to be saved. Not everybody being saved. It's not a promise that all of Israel will be saved. Instead, the promise is all that are supposed to be saved will be saved because God is sovereign and he is in control of man's salvation and he will save. Nothing will stop his plans. His plans have been in place before the foundations of the world and they will be carried out. And by God's grace, he chooses to include us in those plans. Heavy doctrinal stuff going on in 9, 10, and 11. We come to chapter 12 today and we get back to practical application, which doesn't necessarily make it any easier is these, this is now things that we're supposed to do in light of all the head knowledge that we have now from Romans 1 through 11. So Romans 1 through 11, it's all about the promises of the gospel. We wrestled through some of the problems. Has God been unfaithful to the Jewish people? No, he's been absolutely faithful. Lots of increased knowledge headwise. Romans chapter 12 now is what are we going to do with that knowledge? How are we going to seek to apply that practically? So Romans chapter 12 leads us into the final section of Romans We'll call it exhortation, how the believer should act towards others here in chapter 12. We're going to see in chapter 13 how the believer is to act towards the state and government. But in chapter 12 specifically, it's how the believer should act towards others. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Some of your translations may actually start out with the word, therefore. That word draws our attention back to previous content. Paul has used this word already in Romans. In chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, he drew our attention to the fact, what I've told you in Romans chapter 1 leads to further condemnation in chapter 2. In chapter 5, Therefore, because we are justified, we now have peace with God. And he elaborates more on that justification. In chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore, in light of everything up to chapter 8, you have sanctification coming. You have been set free from sin. So you're not allowed to wallow in your sin and say, oh, poor me, I've just got to wait till Jesus comes back before I can ever see any uh, ounce of victory. No, Paul says you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. 
You're dead to sin. You're alive to Christ. Not that you can now live perfectly. That's not what he's teaching. But instead he's teaching you can find victory. You're not supposed to use the excuse of, well, I'm going to continue to be a sinner until Jesus comes back. He says, no, you fight for victory. You fight for holiness in your life and trust that it's possible. Trust that it's possible through the Holy Spirit working inside of you, through the word that you have to read and study that you can find victory in your life over sin. And then he brings us to Romans 12, 1, where he begins to, to describe to us what consecration looks like as we set aside ourselves to God's purposes. So in light of all the doctrine that we've discussed in chapters 1 through 11, it's now time to act on it. And Paul tells us, in light of the mercies of God shown to you, he urges us now to live obediently. Doctrine is always meant to lead to practice. In John 13, 17, Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them it's not just about knowing it's about doing something with what we know it's believing those truths that we've been informed about it's acting on that knowledge paul says in light of everything that we've discussed i urge you now i appeal to you brothers to present your bodies as a living sacrifice the justified believer must act like it In your notes, consecration leads to transformation. When we consecrate ourselves, it will lead to the transformation that we talk about here. The transformation that we desire, that sanctification, that becoming more like Christ. Less sinful, more like Christ. Sanctification, being set apart for God's purposes. The way to get that in our life, it begins with consecration. Number one in your notes there, the believer's responsibility to consecrate the body. Paul says, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The believer's responsibility to consecrate the body, it involves two things. One, deciding to present. Deciding to present. There must be a decision about how you will allow your body to, to be used. Paul says, use your body the right way. Present your body to God for his purposes. He's going back to an idea that he's already presented to us in Romans chapter 6. You remember in Romans 6 verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You'll remember we said that that word instruments really carries the idea of weapons. Are you allowing your body parts to be used as weapons by the enemy for destructive purposes, or are you going to allow your body to be used as weapons in God's hands for righteous purposes? Are you going to be used now for his glory, his honor, or are you going to continue to yield yourselves to sin, which only leads to death, which only leads to destruction? Paul says, in light of everything that we've talked about, present your bodies to God. Our bodies are the instruments of God's glory. We're to be spirit-led and no longer sensually led. What do we mean by that? 
I, I was thinking, and I was, as I was studying this week, just thinking about what it means to be spirit-led versus led by our senses. It would be challenging this week for you to really think through how, how much your decision-making is based on your senses. Think about some of the things that we say, things that are, it's too hot outside, so I'm going to stay inside. Or it's, it's too boring. What you're asking me to do, that's not fun. I'm not going to do it. Um, I'm too tired to do that. Right? Like, I, I'm not going to go do that. I'm too tired. I need to rest. Think about how often we're driven by our senses. Being led by the Spirit means we no longer let our senses dictate what we do. Right? I highlighted this for you, and, and I want to be as open and honest as I can be with you as a church family because I think it's the best way for you to grow. So I confess to you this week, when I was studying in the Word, I was at a point where I really didn't want to be studying the Word this week. I was in an environment where it was really hot, right? Some of us went and ate at McDonald's last night, and they were like, Is it, was it this hot when you were studying? You guys know I don't have an office at home, don't have an office at here, so I study at McDonald's during the week. That's, that's my home. That is where I, I set up camp, and I study, and, and God speaks to me there, and it is good there, and it is sweet fellowship there. And I love the fact that uh, employees and customers are starting to recognize that I'm there and starting to have conversation. Why are you always here? Why do you, are you in college? Like, why do you have these books? Like, why do you have your computer? Why are you always here studying? And it's given me opportunities to talk with them about what I'm doing there. And I'm investing in God's word. But I confess to you, while, while the majority of the time I run there out of joy and anticipation of what God's going to do in my life, there are times when I go out of need versus out of want. There are times when I know I need to be there studying, not just for your sake, but for my sake. But there are times when, if I'm not being spirit-led and I'm being sensually led, being, being led by my senses, I wouldn't be there. I'm too tired to get up early to go study on a Saturday when I've been working all week. This should be my off day. This should be my Sabbath day. This should be my day where I get to rest with my family. It's too hot in here. My, 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 my to-do list at home is too long. I've got to be spirit-led, though, not sensually led. I can't let my senses dictate what I do. Instead, God's word and the Holy Spirit dictates my actions. It dictates how I spend my week. And Paul's telling us to present our bodies in that way. Hey, don't let your bodies rule you anymore. Don't let your bodies dictate what you do. Instead, let the Spirit dictate what you do. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, Paul tells us. Deciding to present. Secondly, deciding to live. What do I mean by that? I, I, think it's, I think it's so important to note that in the Old Testament, you were offering sacrifices that died on the altar, physically died, no more life. And yet in the New Testament, obviously, we're called to present ourselves as living sacrifices because Christ has come. He has satisfied the demands of the law. There are no more animal sacrifices to be offered. But I think it's important to note that it's a living sacrifice. We are not dead to life we are dead to sin which means we aren't giving things up when we come to christ to live for him we are now for the first time ever fully realizing what it means to live and we've talked about this before that his commands are good his way of life is good for us the christian life is not about giving things up and having to die to life it's dying to sin it's relinquishing our hold on things that were never good for us to begin with. It's embracing the abundant life that Christ promises to those that follow him. It's not always an easy life. 
It's not always from a worldly perspective a profitable life, but is the absolute best life for us. It's the abundant life that Christ promises. It's a living sacrifice. It's a choice to live. There must be a belief that following Christ is the only true way to live. It's an act of worship. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We worship things that we think are worth it, right? Like, like we give our affection, we give our worship to things that we have determined, that we have reckoned to be worth our investment. Paul says, you give your bodies to Christ as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. And it's an act of worship. It's something that you have determined this is worth doing. There is value in me giving myself to Christ. I worship him. I have valued him. I have determined that he is worth it to give myself to him. The believer is responsible to consecrate himself by presenting his body, by making a choice to now live for the very first time. Secondly, in your notes, the believer's responsibility to renew the mind. Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. The believer has a responsibility to renew the mind. There's a negative aspect here where we're told to uh, not conform to the world. And then there's a positive aspect. We're told to be transformed in the mind. So negatively by not conforming to the world, positively by being transformed in the mind. We were talking this morning in our youth discipleship class, and I was trying to help both Connor and Juju understand what's going on here in this passage. And um, I'm drawn to the character in Monsters, Inc., Randall, who is a chameleon-type monster who is constantly changing his color based on his environment, right? He conforms to his background. He conforms to his environment. His color, I'm not even sure that he has a true color, it's shaped by wherever he's at. That's the idea going on here in the original Greek. Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be constantly changing based on the world's value system. Think about this. There were things that were cool and awesome and, and in during this time when Paul wrote this. There were things that people did that were considered cool. And those things have probably drastically changed 2,000 years later, right? Things change constantly from that perspective. You can look at uh, previous pictures uh, of your parents, no matter who you are. You can look at par parent pictures, how they dressed the music they listen to, and what was considered cool and in has drastically changed. It, it does that every so, uh, so many years. But think about this truth. What Paul wrote to this church at Rome about what a Christian is supposed to be has not been altered in 2,000 years. If we wanted to live like the world in the time that he wrote Romans, it would look vastly different than what it means to live like the world today because the world has changed now, there's some basic concepts that remain the same, but the things have changed in our culture. Paul says, don't be conformed to something that's constantly changing. Be transformed by something that never changes. He tells us to have our minds renewed. It's so amazing to me that, that Paul could write 2,000 years ago, this is how a Christian is supposed to live, and it's still relevant to us today. 
We don't have to alter it. We don't have to make it applicable for our setting today. These things that are listed here in Romans chapter 12, they're just as true for us today as they were 2,000 years ago. Paul says, don't be conformed by the world. It constantly changes. Instead, be transformed by God's word. Allow your minds to be radically shaped by what God has to say. The idea of being conformed to has a passive type approach to it. It's where we just sit back and let it happen to us. Don't be conformed to the world, meaning don't just sit back passively and let the world dictate to us what's important. Because if we're not active and we just kind of go about our business and sit back passively, we will look just like the world. We will be shaped by it, and we may not even realize it, but we will be shaped by the world. But this, this transformed word has more of an active approach, that we're to engage ourselves in this mind renewal. We're to take responsibility so that we don't sit back passively and allow the world to shape us. Don't be squeezed into the mold of the world. We need to think different and value different. William Barclay says, we are not to be like a chameleon which takes its color from its surroundings. The Christian is to be transformed in the mind. He is to expose his mind to the word if he's to think rightly. And I'm going to give you a couple of statements here that I want to really have them hit home for you, okay? While being in the word does not guarantee sanctification, not being in the word all but guarantees there won't be sanctification. Let me say that again for you. While being in the word does not guarantee sanctification, not being in the word all but guarantees there won't be sanctification. What does that mean? I can't tell you that just because you wake up early and spend 10 or 15 minutes in God's word that you're going to be radically changed and radically sanctified. It's not a do this and this will happen. Okay, so it's not just you get up. I mean, if your heart's not right, your attitude's not right, just sitting down and reading through a chapter a day is not going to radically change you. But I can tell you that if you're not in the word, you will not be radically changed. That is a guarantee. If your mind is to be renewed, it necessitates that you have to be in the word. Or you will passively sit by and let the world shape how you think. We have to expose ourselves to God's word. We have to immerse ourselves in God's word. Another statement. <clears throat> Our lives are only changed as much as our minds are renewed. Our lives are only changed as much as our minds are renewed. So the level of sanctification that you're experiencing will always be tied to the amount of time you're spending in God's Word. Now, understand, I'm not isolating that to how long you spend in your daily devotional time, okay? For, for those of you that haven't been with us as long, we've spent extensive time talking about the fact that you have to define for yourself what it means for you to be in the Word. For some of us, that's going to be a little bit of a time every single day. For others of us, it means setting aside a big chunk of time during the week to where we just immerse ourselves. So some of us, our personality is, I want to be in the Word 30 minutes a day, seven days a week. Others of us, we, we thrive better if I'm in the Word for four hours on one day and a little bit of time the rest of the week. So you've got to determine what it means for you to be in the Word 
But what I've challenged you guys with previously is you have to define that for yourself and you have to pursue that for yourself. You've got to be in the word. So we're not going to tell you what a devotional life looks like. We're not going to place demands on you that this is how you do a devotion. This is how you spend time with God. But what we are going to challenge you to do is to be with God, to spend time with God, to be in the word. And your life will only be changed as much as you're committed to that. That's personally being in the word. Uh, Connor shared it in Youth Discipleship. He said, that also entails us being around other believers. And I said, absolutely, absolutely. I'm in the word when I spend time with people that are in the word and I reap the benefits of their time in the word, right? You guys are here reaping the benefits of hours that I've spent studying Romans chapter 12. So even though you're not specifically reading and studying and writing things this morning, maybe, you're reaping the benefits. You're in the word this morning because you're spending time with somebody that's been in the word. Your life will only be changed as much as your mind is renewed. I've yet to meet someone struggling with sin that is seeking to kill it in the word with diligence and zeal. Let me say that again. I've yet to meet someone struggling with sin that is seeking to kill it in the word with diligence and zeal. Okay, so I meet with people all the time from our church, people that are struggling and fighting sin. I've yet to meet someone that is giving themselves to sin, that can't find victory over sin, that is diligently and with zeal putting themselves in God's word. It typically follows, I've given into sin. Have you been in the word? Not really. That's the pattern that I've seen in all of my years of ministry. I meet with somebody, I'm struggling with sin. Okay, talk to me about that, all right? I understand what you're saying. Have you been in the word recently? No. Or yes, but uh, you know, I, I read for like 15 minutes yesterday. You can't kill sin if you're not in the word. You can't transform your mind if it's not being exposed to God's word. You don't need professional counseling to get over sin. I will never refer somebody to have professional counselors come in and try to motivate you to give up sin until somebody is in the word. Because they don't have anything new to tell you. They don't have anything new to say to you. Until you devote yourself to immersing your mind in God's word, you should never expect to see victory over sin. Paul tells us it starts with the mind. Your mind has to be transformed. It has to be transformed. That's your only hope for victory over sin. Transformation leads to God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. He says, if you immerse yourself in God's word and you allow your mind to be transformed, you will be in the will of God. You'll be in the will of God. That's his recipe for spiritual success. Let your mind be changed. Let your mind be changed. Let it be renewed if you're going to find victory. And I've devoted my life, I devote my week to being in God's word. Because I know it's the only hope that I have of not disqualifying myself from ministry. It's the preemptive measures that I take to make sure that I don't fall to the flesh. We live in a time today where I was selling something on Craigslist 
And, and the guy, I could tell the guy was nervous. I mean, Craigslist always comes with question marks. You know, am I going to show up? And is the guy going to be just completely sketchy? Um, so I was trying to give this guy as much assurance as possible that, hey, I'm not a weirdo. You're going to be totally okay when you come meet me to pick this up. And I'm being totally honest with you about this, this thing that I'm selling you. And I told him this, and I hesitated because I wasn't sure if this discredited me, but I said, um, we're going to meet at my church, and I'm the pastor of that church. And I said, I understand that that may not give you a whole lot of extra assurance that you can trust me right now. Because we live in a day and age where pastors are falling by the wayside constantly. They're giving into the flesh, and they're falling to sin. Even within our local community, this happens and is happening. And I know for me, the only way that I have any hope of, of protection from falling in that way is to immerse myself in God's word. And let me, let me we've, got, we've got young married couples in here, couples that I've married, couples that I'm, I'm going to marry in the near future. And let me tell you, the success of, of mine and Lauren's marriage is not based on how many date nights that we have. It's not based on the, the, the frequency of how often... Um, we, we are able to engage in, in sex. It's not based on her uh, physical appearance. My, my devotion and my faithfulness to my wife will always be tied to my time in God's word. Our, our, and Lauren, I want you to know this. Our marriage is more stable today than it ever has been. Because when we started accountability groups last year, I know that I'm protected because I have a group of godly men in this church that meet with me regularly. And the more I spend time in God's word, the more stable our relationship is. So our marriage is more stable today than it ever has been, and it's not based on anything that my wife does. It's based on my commitment to make sure that my mind stays renewed constantly. Because if it's tied to how often we have a date night, if it's tied to whether she regains her, her figure after her second delivery of, of our child, if it's tied to that, then I'm destined to fail. And I'm destined to give in to my flesh. If it's, if it's tied to anything that Lauren does from a performance level, I will fall. I will give in to sin. So Lauren, you never have to be concerned about me being faithful to you unless you see that I stop going to the word. If you ever question if my mind is being renewed, that's when you can worry about our marriage. Because I will always be faithful to you if I'm submitting my mind to God's word and allowing my mind to be transformed constantly. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time thing where, okay, my mind's been fixed. I think like a Christian thinks now. It's a constant renewal. The, the, the Greek tense here for this word is a constant thing that has to be happening. Your mind has to be transformed if you're going to find victory over sin. Paul challenges us as believers to not be conformed, but to be transformed. The implication here, if these things are happening, the will of God will be accomplished. The will of God will be accomplished. Now what Paul describes here in the rest of chapter 12, these things don't happen naturally. They only happen if a man's mind has been transformed and renewed. Because these things are contrary to our flesh. Loving our enemies, putting other needs above our own needs, that's not something that naturally happens. It only happens when we've allowed our minds to be transformed by God's word. Verse 
So the second Roman numeral in your notes, humility leads to love. We have a responsibility to consecrate ourselves so that transformation can happen. We also have a responsibility to submit ourselves to humility so that we can actually love people like we're supposed to. Look what he says in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. The believer's responsibility is to keep proper perspective. I have to keep a proper perspective about myself. Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Keep a proper perspective. First, by walking in humility, there in your notes. By walking in humility. Now, he draws our attention to humility by drawing our attention to how different everybody is within the church and how the church needs everybody to be different. So Paul highlights the fact, and we're not going to go into a big discussion on spiritual gifts. We've, we've done that recently. What I want to remind you here is, is that every person has a role to play within the church. We're gifted differently. If everybody was gifted to teach and preach, we would never get through a Sunday morning service, right? Because I would take up all the time, and then we'd still have so many others that needed to come up and preach and teach. We're gifted differently. We're equipped differently by the Holy Spirit. And when we all function the way that we're supposed to, when we all embrace who we are, then the body functions like it's supposed to. And it's healthy and it's good. Paul reminds us of these truths. We all have different necessary functions within the body of Christ to make it thrive. Now my question to you in light of this, in light of what he says is, are you doing your fullest within this church? If you're gifted differently than me, it doesn't matter how hard I work, I can't make up for the fact that you're not doing your part. Are you doing your role? Are you doing your job to the fullest? Have you embraced that responsibility? Let me ask it another way. Would leadership here at Sovereign Hope be concerned that you're going to burn out with how much you're doing at Sovereign Hope? Because we have people like that. We have people that we have to protect because their, their mindset is if there's a need, if there's, a, if there's a, um, a position that needs to be filled, sign me up. I'll do it. And there are people that we have to pull aside and say, look, you're already doing this and this and this. You don't have possibly have time to do this. We appreciate your zeal. We appreciate your enthusiasm. You'll kill yourself if you try to do this as well. Are you even close to being that type of person that is so invested in this church, that's so invested in using your gifts and abilities and talents that the Holy Spirit has given you, so you're, you're a steward of that, you're responsible for that, are you even close to being guilty of burnout because you're trying to fulfill your job to the fullest? Paul says we have roles to play. Keep proper perspective about who you are. Secondly, by walking in love. So we walk in humility, and then we walk in love. Verse 9, what we find out is that our concern now becomes for the body, Christ's body. And no longer our bodies. Remember, we've given up our bodies. We've sacrificed our bodies. We've given ourselves to God and his purposes. So my concern now is for the body, Christ's body, and not my own body. By walking in love. Verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. 
love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Paul says that we're to walk in love with sincerity in verses 9 and 10. There's to be no hypocrisy. There's to be no acting. You may have heard this before, but in in this day and age, when, when Paul was writing, the word hypocrite was used for somebody who was an actor. Now, that word has all kinds of negative connotations today, so we would never consider somebody in Hollywood Uh, from a positive standpoint, we would never call them a hypocrite, right? Like we would call them an actor or an actress. But that original meaning for that word was somebody who acted, who pretended, who put on a show, who was something that they were not, which is what we understand the word hypocrite to mean. We just understand it fully now as a negative thing and never really as a positive thing. But Paul says, let your love be without hypocrisy. Let it be genuine. Let there be no acting to it, no pretending to it. Let it be real. Let it be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Outdo one another in showing honor. Number uh, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Now we've talked recently about zeal and how there's, uh, when we're zealous without knowledge, it's a bad thing, right? The Jewish people were guilty of this. They were zealous for God. They were zealous for Yahweh and his name. That's why they killed Jesus, because Jesus claimed to be Yahweh, and they were so zealous for God that they said nobody can claim to be God. Now, their zeal was misapplied because they didn't have right knowledge. Had they really grasped the knowledge that Jesus was Yahweh, that Jesus is God, they would have been zealous for Jesus. So so Paul gets on to them and says, you had zeal but without knowledge. I challenged you that too often we're guilty of having knowledge and no zeal. We live in a day and age where we have more resources and more podcasts and more pastors and more books available to us than Christians of any other day and age. Specifically within our country, we have more than anybody else on this planet. And and, and we're too guilty of having the knowledge without the zeal. That we're not passionate for his kingdom. We know a lot about his kingdom. We know a lot about this word. And some of us know it and we could we could some of you guys could teach seminary classes on what you know about God's word. And we lack the zeal. Paul says, don't be slothful in your zeal. The real wording there has the idea of boiling with enthusiasm. Boiling with enthusiasm. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. We're to be diligent in it. We're to make every effort to love those around us. He goes on to tell us that we're to rejoice in hope, we're to be patient in tribulation, we're to be constant in prayer, we're to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We're to constantly be in a state of rejoicing by patiently enduring tribulation through through prayer. See, for the Christian, the Christian goes through tribulation, he just goes through it differently than the lost person, right? He's drawn and, and driven to prayer. He, he, he claims the promises of Romans 8, 28, that God's working good. That even in the midst of difficulty, that God has bigger and better plans in store. And that he's going to turn negative, evil situations into good. The believer has that promise. The believer can trust in that promise. He weathers those storms of tribulation differently. He's driven to God in prayer, not to criticize and complain. Paul's telling us to be content, to let situations play out rather than complaining. To trust that God is doing good in your life. To trust that truth of Romans 8. 
The reminder here is that God is too wise to make mistakes. He's too loving to be unkind to his children. And he's too powerful to be thwarted in his plans. He's too wise. we, We trust Romans 8 that God has good intent in every situation. He's too wise to mess that up. He's too powerful to let somebody else mess it up. And he's too loving to ever be unkind to his children. He sent his son for us. He justified us. He's sanctifying us. He's filled us with his Holy Spirit. How could we ever doubt that he's working good in our life? Over and over and over, Paul's giving us this assurance that we can trust God, that we can trust his promises, that we can put our hope in him. We're also challenged to walk in a, in a way that's generous in verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. There's the idea of giving and hospitality. And Paul's challenge to us is to seek it out. Don't just wait on it. Don't just wait on opportunities to be generous. Don't just wait on opportunities to be hospitable. Create those opportunities. For those of you that have money, create opportunities to be generous with it. For those of you that have resources, homes, possessions to be hospitable with, and I like to remind you, you don't have to be hospitable only if you have a house. If you have kayaks and canoes, I love to go fishing. You can be hospitable with your boats, right? Be hospitable. Seek out ways to be hospitable to those around you. Use your possessions. Use your bodies as weapons for righteousness. Anytime I start talking with Lauren about wanting to buy a boat, I I remind her, look, I'm going to invite men from the church. We're going to have spiritual conversations on that boat. I'm going to use it as a weapon of righteousness, right? Be hospitable, Paul reminds us. He says, love those around you. Be sincere with it. Seek out opportunities. Create these opportunities to show hospitality. And then lastly here in your notes, we walk in sincerity, we walk with zeal, we walk with generosity, we walk with peace. He closes this chapter with some of his most challenging statements. Ultimately, we find that we're to respond completely differently than what you would expect to find in these type of situations. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Ultimately, what you find here in this passage is is a Christian is supposed to be someone that diffuses and disarms opposition. He diffuses enmity. He doesn't create enmity, or he doesn't add to the enmity. He diffuses it. He reacts differently than what you would expect. That's why Paul has such strong teaching about a a Christian suing another Christian. That a Christian is supposed to say, you know what, I'm not getting involved in this. I'm not going to create more conflict. I'm not going to create more intricacies to what's already going on. He says, you're supposed to diffuse this. Don't create it. 
It's the opposite reaction of what you would expect. The, the natural fleshly reaction is, if somebody's done something to me, I'm going to do something back. That's an unwritten rule in baseball, for those of you that follow baseball, right? I was watching last night. There was a, um, a game where, I'm trying to think of what initially started. Oh, a guy was trying to uh, dodge a, a tag. So, okay, so there was a rundown, and the guy's trying to get away from the tag, and the guy tags him, and the guy ends up falling down and gets really mad about it. Like, how dare you tag me so hard? And everybody that's watching the game realizes you're trying to get away from the guy. Like, he did everything he could to tag you. Very next inning, the guy that did the hard tag came up to the plate to bat, and they beat him with the ball. Starts this whole ruckus, you know, back and forth. We're going to get back at you for what you did to our guy. That's the natural reaction. Somebody does something to me, I'm going to do something back. And Paul says the Christian reacts completely contrary to that. He blesses those who persecute them. That doesn't happen if your mind's not being renewed. If you haven't been in the Word recently, and somebody does something to you, your natural reaction is going to seek vengeance, as Paul talks about. But if you're going to the Word, allowing your mind to be renewed, then your reaction now is spirit-led versus letting your senses dictate to you what you should do in that situation. In speech, in attitude, and in actions, he highlights how we're to act towards those who do wrong to us. Paul tells us to focus on the positive, to, to seek no vengeance. We can trust that all things will be made right one day, right? He, he draws our attention to the fact that Jesus is coming back one day. When Jesus comes as the great, supreme, all-knowing judge, he will make everything right. That sin that someone has done to you will be paid for. It will be paid for. Either by that individual for eternity in hell or by Christ on the cross right? Somebody sins against you, but if it's covered by the blood of Christ, it has been judged to the fullest, just like your sin has been judged to the fullest. I keep coming back, and we've, we've referenced this, I keep coming back to Jesus on the cross, forgiving the thief next to him after he's lived a life of rebellion, a life of rebellion. You would expect that Jesus would look at him and say, are you serious? Now you want to get things right? Now you want to make amends with me? That would be our reaction is absolutely not. You've had plenty of opportunities and you have given yourself to sin. Now at the, at the doorstep of death, you want to get things right. Absolutely not. Jesus never draws up any sins to him. He says, you'll see me in paradise today. His sins were judged to the fullest by Christ right next to him on the cross. And as he was about to slip into eternity and hell, his life was spared by the mercy and grace of God. And so we can trust that any wrongs that are done to us will either be unfortunately dealt with in hell for eternity, potentially if that person never receives Christ, or it has been dealt with to the fullest. Full wrath of God poured out on that sin on the cross, just like your sins were dealt with. In the meantime, as we wait for Jesus to return, we're instead told to offer a different type of payment back to our enemies. The only repayment we give to them is a good payment. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, those of you that have sat in my teaching before, we've talked about this. I used to misunderstand this passage. I thought, here's how you get back at your enemies. You do good things to them, and it makes them angry. Right? Like it's, it's like burning coals on their head. Like, 
I want to start something with you, and you won't let me start something with you. And so by doing good, I actually make my, my enemies angry. And that's how you get back at them. That's the Christian way to get back at them. You don't be mean to them. You be nice to them, and that makes them angry. And so in the end, you win. And that's not the idea going on here. This, this heaping coals of fire on their head is an idea of repentance. The idea here is, is if I feed my enemies, if I take care of my enemies, if I respond contrary to what they expect me to do, it breaks their heart. It breaks their stone-cold heart because they see a genuine love a sincere love, a love that is completely unfamiliar to them, a love that they don't see in the world. It's a transformed type of love that draws them to repentance because Paul tells us the implication here. If you do this, good reigns over evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We turn our enemies to our friends we let our actions lead them to repentance rather than increased enmity. See, if I fire back at my enemy, it just increases the enmity between us. It just increases the sin. And it continues to go on and on and on. Back and forth, back and forth. Who'll give in first? But when I bless those who curse me, when I don't curse them back, it leads them to repentance which is ultimately what I want, right? Like I want them to, to treat me with love. And that's what happens when they turn to Christ in repentance. They're now pursuing sanctification and that enmity has been torn down between us. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's so much contained in this chapter and, and we have flown through it this morning. And so my point of application for you today is to, is to go back and look at this chapter and to identify the areas that you need to give attention to. As he describes what a Christian is supposed to look like, the, the, the application for this morning is probably going to look different for each one of us individually because there's some areas that we need to focus on more than others. You may be looking at this and saying, I am stingy with my money. I, I hold on to it. I'm not a giving person. And I need to become generous. I need to seek out ways to be generous. Seek out ways to be hospitable. Others of you may look and say, I really do have an issue with, with those in my life that are viewed as my enemies. I don't treat them like this. And the application is, once we've identified, okay, where do I need to, where do I need to really focus some attention? I, I'm not living like this. I'm not doing this. Again, it starts with the mind. There's, there's, a, there's a, uh, a transforming of the mind that has to happen for this type of behavior to ever happen in your life. It's not just, okay, go home and be more generous or go home and be more hospitable. It's, okay, I need to go home and yield my mind to the word. I need to be constant in prayer so that this becomes a fruit of the spirit living inside of me. It still goes back to the time in the word. It still goes back to immersing yourself in God's word so that your mind can be transformed you can live this type of life that Christ that that Paul is describing. Let's pray and then I'll take any questions or, or comments that you might have. Father, I'm thankful this morning for for your word. God, I'm thankful that you promise transformation when we yield ourselves to your word. And Father, we understand that we have to come with the right attitudes. It's not just a uh, 
a checklist or a to-do list where if we sit down and, and read a certain amount of chapters that we're guaranteed to be radically changed. But Father, we do recognize this morning that unless we run to your word constantly, we'll never be changed. So Father, I pray that you would challenge all of us this morning to examine ourselves and how much we are devoting ourselves to your word. Are we immersing ourselves in it? Are we pursuing you through your word with diligence and zeal? And God, I pray that you would not allow our time in the word to be dictated by our senses. That we only go to the word if we're not too tired, if we're not too busy. God, that we would run to the word even when we don't always want to. That we would run out of necessity. God, I'm thankful for the protection that you've provided in my life from my own flesh because of your word. God, I'm thankful for the victory over sin that I'm able to see because you're transforming my mind. God, I pray for that continued protection. God, I want to echo what Paul says that he does everything he can to keep himself from being disqualified. God, I know that I'm no better than the Apostle Paul, obviously. And so if, if he was conscious of the fact that failure was possible, that I too would be conscious of that. That I would beat my body into subjection to you. God, help me to realize that, that it's a living sacrifice that I'm giving to you. I'm not dying to life, I'm living life. The way that you meant for it to be lived. God, I thank you for this church family where I'm able to live that life out with others. God, I thank you for the men in my life that hold me accountable to pursuing you constantly. Father, I pray that you would increase that environment of accountability within our church. That everyone would be reaping the benefits of that type of community. God, create that genuine love here at Sovereign Hope where we're abhorring evil and holding fast to what is good together, that we're rejoicing together, weeping together because of the intimate knowledge that we have of each other, because we've invested ourselves here. We're using our talents and gifts and abilities that you've equipped us with to make this body healthy. God, help none of us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But God, help us not to think more lowly of ourselves than we ought to think. Father, help us to realize that you have gifted individuals in this room to be a part of this church to serve, that they have a contribution that they can make here, that they're important. They're important to the advancement of the gospel in this area. Father, we thank you for Christ, his sacrifice. We thank you for the salvation that's made available to us. Father, we thank you that you have ultimately judged our sin to the fullest. And Father, I pray for those this morning that, that maybe don't know that, don't realize that, have not yielded to that yet, that you would draw them to salvation, that your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin. And they would yield themselves to you as an act of worship. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. 
Again, that's www.sovhope.org.